such friendliness. It's a joy to be here with you this morning. We have received the warmth from many of you from starting yesterday, and so it's really exciting to see what the Lord is doing in our midst in this congregation and the unity that we've observed in the whole church that encourages us. It's an exemplary and it's a privilege really to be here. And I'm very grateful to the Lord for the time that we're going to spend today. As Alex mentioned, I'm from Guayaquil, Ecuador, and I wanted to tell them something as an introduction about my city. My city of Guayaquil is a coastal city, about 4 million uh, people. Generally, we say that there are two stations in the year. We have hot and hot and rainy. Those are the two seasons that we have in Guayaquil. So it's a city that has a, a port to the sea. And because of that, the sea has been very important uh, throughout history for the city. And in uh, the 1800s, there was a lighthouse built that was on an island just outside of the city. And this lighthouse obviously was to 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 help boats not uh, not crash, and this helped the commerce, and this helped um, the shipping lanes and and the, the and the the shipping uh, there. But in 2002, it stopped working, and in 2002 they rebuilt it, and they built it on a hill near the city. They they reconstructed it on this hill named Cerro Santana. And at the tip of this this hill, there is a lighthouse, 29 meters high. And to get to that lighthouse, someone has to climb 444 stairs, and then you get to the lighthouse. And when you think you've already gotten to, to the lighthouse, it, there are more stairs because you can you can go up to the very top of the lighthouse, and then from there you can see a large part of the city. So this lighthouse looks very nice. It was created in 2002, and if you were to see it from far away, it looks like a lighthouse. At night, it lights up, but it doesn't function. It doesn't guide any boat. It's not preventing any accidents. It hasn't saved any lives. It is not out in the ocean. It is not completing any real function. It's an imitation. On the outside, it looks like a common lighthouse. If you didn't know anything, you would say there is a lighthouse. It's guiding boats, but that's not true. They are just, they look like a lighthouse, but it's not guiding anyone. It has not saved any lives. It has not prevented any accidents. And it's sad, but this lighthouse is much like many churches. Many churches, sadly, look like churches on the outside. They have a title, perhaps on the door, and they all look like they are a church, but they are not completing the function of a church. They are not saving the sinners. They are not bringing the message of Christ to the needy. They are not edifying the saints. They are not worshiping God appropriately. Now, we could say about this church, in the same way as this lighthouse that's in my city, that it's an imitation. 
And when the church doesn't fulfill its function, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Even though it looks nice on the outside, in reality, as Alex was saying, it's something that brings destruction, that brings condemnation. It's confusing. Instead of being light to the lost, it is bringing confusion to the lost. Okay, that believe that this is a genuine church, but in reality, it's just an imitation. There are churches that are not completing the purpose that God wants them to do. And instead of this, and some of them do them do it because they don't know, but others do this because they simply, simply are not interested in pleasing God. But, but in the same way, both types are equally destructive whether they do it from not knowing or if they do it because they are not interested in pleasing God. Both are lighthouses with no light that do not fulfill the purpose for which they had been created by God. The church has been created and designed by God and and has a function, a specific function in this world that we're going to see today. But what is the point of a lighthouse that is off? What is the point of a false lighthouse? Nothing. It's just an attra- uh, tour- tourist attraction. It's to take a picture and that's it. It's not completing the function of saving, of keeping, of taking care of. I would like to invite you now, as we enter this theme, if you, if you uh, join me in a brief prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for re- you, for letting us reunite and meditate on your church. Thank you that you have given us your word that brings light to our hearts and guides us to your will. Father, thank you that through your word we can know exactly how to obey you, how to please you, how the church must direct itself. You have not let anything for our own perception or or our own opinion that frequently fails, but you have given us everything necessary in the scriptures to do your will, Lord. Father, we pray that the conferences of today would be a blessing. Use your word to open, to speak to our hearts. Remove any distraction that we, that might separate us from focusing on your word and on your will. Help us, Father, to demonstrate obedience, to demonstrate a listening ears and a heart that is, that is receptive to your word. Thank you for the, for the work that this church is doing to reach out to others and to be a blessing to those who are in our midst. Thank you for all of this, Father. We, we, we put this time in your hands. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to stop. Uh, we're going to start in the most, in the most simple. We're going to start from, the greatest to the least, we're going to start by defining what is the church. We speak a lot about the church, but what is the church? As Alex mentioned, the word ecclesia initially referred to, it initially referred to citizens who had been called, who have been uh, to complete search, certain social functions, certain responsibilities, perhaps a battle. It was a calling but the New Testament uses it to speak of the congregation of those who have been called 
to to worship God, to praise God, to instruct others, then when we think of the church, we're not thinking of a building, which I think we we can understand where we're going with this. Sometimes we use the term in a in a very light way. We talk about the church as if it were a building. Sometimes I've heard people referring to, uh, to the to the building as the church, and we ought to be cautious to not confuse these terms. The building is not the church. The building can change. The building maybe gets too small and we need to move to another one, or sometimes for whatever reason it doesn't work anymore for us and we have to change it. It's not that the church is changing. The church is the believers. It's the members that the Lord has called, that the Lord has brought to love him, to believe in his son. And we're going to look at a few texts, and I hope you have your Bibles ready. We're going to see a few verses in this hour. But I want you to join me in Acts 20.28. Acts 20.28. And I want to demonstrate here how the New Testament uses this word, ecclesia, to to speak of the church of the Lord or the congregation of those who worship the Lord. Acts 20.28 says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. There are various things that we can that we can point to here that we've mentioned at the beginning. We don't have all the we don't have an unlimited amount of time to expand on what the ecclesiology is, but we're going to try to lay a foundation, a base that'll help us understand, help us to give us a clear idea of what the church is and how the church ought to behave in a way that that pleases the Lord. We see that the Holy Spirit is the one who is guiding the church, who is placing in the church overseers that in the New Testament is an interchangeable uh, term, pastor, overseer, elder. It's, it's a interchangeable term. It's communicating the same role within the church. Then it's the Holy Spirit that places overseers or pastors to guide to shepherd to to shepherd the church of the lord the ecclesia of the church the called out ones so the first thing that we have that we observe here is that the church is not made of all those who claim to be christians many claim to be christian many affirm to love christ but the question is have they been called by the lord have they been have they been reborn because that being reborn was produced by god and and places them within the church the new the new birth is a supernatural act it is a miracle that someone that someone believes in christ it's a it's a miracle that someone would abandon their sin and love the lord it's not it's not it's not the the goodness of the mess of the preacher or the sermon how 
oh, this, this, this preacher is more dynamic. And so I'm going to take him to, to listen because surely he will be converted because the preacher is so good. No, we're putting our hope in the wrong place. We're putting our hope in a man that cannot change the heart. None of us, there is no preacher that has the power to transform a heart that is dead in sins and can bring bring it to life. That is a miracle that only God can do. God can give life to that dead soul. So the church is those who have been called out. And who are they? The verse ends by saying, which he purchased with his own blood. And so now we're starting to see the idea in this verse. It talks to us about authority within the church. There are pastors that have been placed by the Holy Spirit, been placed by God to shepherd lovingly those who have been called, those whom God has brought to salvation. And those that God has brought to salvation, he has done this through by through the sacrifice of Christ. Let's look at another text and that is Galatians 1.13. If you can open your Bible to Galatians 1.13. And it says, Paul is saying, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. In this term, ecclesia, used in the New Testament in a particular way, not to speak of someone who has been called for a battle or not someone who has been called to complete a social role, but to speak specifically someone who has been called by God to form the body that is the church. As Acts 8.28 mentions that Christ purchased with his blood, it's those who have been called, to salvation, those who have been called really to form a part of the church. And so it's very clear the the church is not the building. The church is the group. It's a community of those who have been liberated from the from slavery of sin by faith in Christ. That is who have been called out. Those are the ones who form a part of the church in reality. Very quickly, another text, 1 Corinthians 1, 2, speaks to this theme. 1 Corinthians 1, 2 says, To the church of God, which is at Corinth. This is interesting because here we see that there is a congregation, a local congregation. We must distinguish then the universal church from the local church. It's interesting this because we can learn that even though all of the believers form a part of the universal church, it is divided into local churches located in general in in sectors, in areas. For example, this is the church that is located in Corinth. And Paul addressed his his letters to local churches. And if every every person has really been regenerated, then they should be a part of a local congregation. Why? We're going to see because there in a local church is where we are going to be able to use our gifts to be, to grow, 
to learn, to encourage others, to be encouraged by others, to be guided by the pastors. If you notice, God has designed the church not to function in a way that's isolated, not to function in a way that is online or remote, that I'm behind a computer screen where nobody knows me, where nothing, where nobody takes a part of my life. On many occasions, I've heard people who have mentioned, well, I come to church, but I don't want anyone to be a part of my life. That's sad. Because in reality, you don't want what the church is. The church is an integration where we are going to be not, not in, in, we're going to be involved in the life of the congregation. Why? Because we are, we are helping, we are sharpening each other. We have gifts. You have a certain uh, maturity that's going to help my life. And maybe I lack certain things in which you can influence me, and I can do the same to you. The gifts and talents, the work of the Lord that he is doing in another brother is going to be a blessing for others who are guided, and they're guided. The church has been designed by God to function in community, to function in a, in a way, in a group way, not isolated. Sometimes maybe you've heard people that have mentioned, I love God. I have a relationship, a personal relationship with God, but I don't want to know anything about the church or I don't want to be a part of a church. Well, this is a contradiction. It's a huge contradiction, the size of a house. It's a great contradiction because you are saying, I want to have a relationship with God, but I've immediately began to disobey him. There's, this doesn't make sense. God is the one who designs the church. God has established the church. It is, it's a gift that we can be a part of a church. It's, it's, it's impossible to say, I want to be, I don't want uh, to grow. I don't want to be instructed. I, I refuse. I don't want those blessings by which God can help me to grow in the image of Christ. And you can only find that in the church, in this community of those who have been called by God to salvation. Then we were saying in 1 Corinthians 1-2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, a reference to a local church, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. And notice the passive verb. This, this means that the subject is not completing the action, but is receiving the action. It's not that that subject by his own merits, is holy. It's that he has been made holy, has been made sanctified. The church in in Corinth is not holy in its own merits. It's not holy because they have earned it. No. They have been sanctified. They receive the benefit of that verb. In Christ Jesus, and we see the term again, They've been sanctified with all those, all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. And so here we have a clear reference to an universal church, a a local church, uh, I'm sorry, a, a general church, a global church. Those who call on the name of the Lord are my brothers, and we will be sharing eternity with them. And that's a joy and that's a blessing. But obviously we can't, we can't, 
be in relationship and serve everyone that are, that is far geographically meant geographically. That's why we have local congregations where I can get involved, where I can belong. That's the idea of a membership. I am not a simple attendant. I'm not a simple visitor. I am a member of this church because I want to use my gifts. I want to serve the Lord. I want that others use their gifts to help me grow in the image of Christ. That's my hope. That's my desire. If I'm Christian, that is my desire. If I don't have that desire in my heart, there's a problem there. I'm not understanding something. There's something I'm not understanding. If I just want to come to church to feel that I have completed something with God, I'm not understanding what's happening. There are people that go on Sunday morning, they leave, and they have a false false sensation of completing something. That God must be so happy with me because I've completed something. I came here on Sunday morning. I came to the Bible study during the week. Wow. God must be really happy with me. But it's not that. God doesn't need anything from us. It's the opposite. We need from God. We come not to receive, not to feel better about ourselves and to give me a pat on the back. I come to be instructed. I come to serve others. I come to worship God. I come to complete the will of God. That is that me, that I, every day grow closer to the image of Christ. Every day I am more in his likeness. And this is, and you can obtain this in means by being around other believers and having a clear uh, preaching of the scripture and to live among other other Christians that will teach me how to obey those scriptures. You're going to listen to other people praying. We're going to eat and we're going to hear them uh, pray for the meal. And I learn and I'm, and I'm sharing with other brothers more mature than me. And I see how they raise their children in the fear of the Lord, in the discipline of the Lord. And I learn how they communicate this fear of the Lord to their children. I want to be the same because I want to please God. I want the, my kids to be saved. So the church offers this wonderful place where we can adore God, where we can be instructed by the word, and where we can also be instructed or encouraged or exhorted by our brothers in practical forms and direct forms. And we're going to speak more about that in our next session. But if you remember quickly, and I'll mention this um, quickly because of time, Paul to Timothy also makes this reference. Second Timothy one nine, he says, Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. And notice this, the Christian did not save himself, did not call himself. He had been called. He has been saved. He did not save and not call us and called us out. He has called us to to belong to a congregation. If a person says that they're saved, but they don't decide to, they don't desire to respond to that calling, they're in open rebellion against God. 
imagine if some if at your work someone tells you to do something or or a, a sports team tells them to complete a responsibility what happens if a player says no i don't want to do that i'm not interested in going to defend this the uh, my 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 national colors that would be very bad it would be open disobedience how much more than a person who affirms to be Christian but does not want to respond to the calling that God has called him to, the calling that that God has given him to belong to a congregation of the saints, as the New Testament talks says, to the congregation of those redeemed. That is the desire of God, that this congregation this congregation is made of those who have been called, as Paul, as Paul said to Timothy, not because of our works, not that we were so good and that's why we're in our church. It's what the Lord has done in our hearts that has brought us to church to be saints. Excuse me. And this is interesting. It's the purpose of God. It's the desire of God and the grace that has been given us in Christ Jesus before before the ages. Here we go to a second point that is important to understand in, with respect to the church. The church is not composed uh, haphazardly. Sometimes we have the idea that someone comes and listens to the message, and depending on this person, the goodwill of this person, to respond. To respond to the calling the external calling that is being made when the preacher is speaking of the gospel, is communicating the gospel, this knows as the this is known as the external calling. And so the external calling is oftentimes refused. You've seen that probably where you've shared the gospel with someone and they say, I don't want anything to do with that, and they leave. They say, I don't want to abandon my my sin. I don't want to change my life. I don't want a style of my life that pleases God. But when God calls internally, when God touches the heart of that person, there there is no option to refuse. There is no option to say, I don't want that. The Lord transforms the heart. The Lord makes you be reborn, and there's nothing in this world can, that can stop that when the Lord really works. That's why when a person repents of their sins and looks and seeks God, we pray and we don't say, thank you, Lord. We don't say, thank you, Lord, because my cousin was so intelligent in repenting of his sins and looking and seeking you. No, we say, thank you, Lord. We don't say, thank you, Lord, that my husband, after 10 years, was so brilliant and so intelligent, and he understood that Christ is a Savior. We don't say that. We say, thank you, Lord, because you have saved him. Thank you, Lord, because you have worked in his heart. So when we pray, we understand the correct perspective. It's God who saves. We know that God needs, it's necessary that God uh, create a miracle in that heart. God is the one who makes that internal calling. We are called to preach the gospel to all creatures. But but then God labors in the hearts of those individual people. Now, we say 
the church is not a product of 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 haphazardness. It's not that someone suddenly repents and says, "Oh, what a surprise! Ugo Ugo repented." I, I would have never guessed. I would have never believed that Ugo would have repented. And then there's a, a joy in heaven. Some people have that perception that that's what's going on when a believer repent when when a sinner repents. But what's happening when a sinner repents is that God has determined to save. God has determined to save that person according to the New Testament before the foundation of the world. And the angels celebrate not because they are surprised because they are, but because they are praising God about of his power to transform a, a perverted person into something pure and holy in Christ's merits. And the, the angels worship God in demonstrating his power in salvation. And we can see this in the Bible. God from eternity past, before the foundation of the earth, however you want to say it, has called or has determined who will respond. It's God who has who has has determined to save these people, and God knows the exact moment in which he will do that work of salvation because the salvation rests in the power of God. Romans 8.30, if you have your Bible, Romans 8.30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. I'm reading from the Reina Valera. Romans 8.30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice, Sometimes, depending on the context in which we we find ourselves, depending on the con- context in which we have been instructed, I, I was many years in a church, and I never heard anyone teach about predestination. And there was a point in which this was completely new to me, that I discovered that these that these verses were in the Bible. But Paul is very clear when he explains how the church was conceived by God. It's not a product of casualty. It's not a product of of something uh, just random. But God has predestined before the foundation of the, of the world those who previously would, would he would call to salvation. These are, as Paul says, those he predestined, he also called, and he also justified in Christ, and those he justified, he also glorified. And this is very interesting because Paul is using the past simple in the Greek to speak of something future. And this is what he's communicating, simply the certainty of this action. Paul is saying, Paul is affirming that this this action is so certain that he's using this this form of words to emphasize emphasize it. God, who he predestined and called and justified, he will definitely be, he will definitely justify. Why do we know that every genuine Christian will, will reach 
eternity in heaven and will be glorified because it doesn't depend on his own merits. It depends on the power of God to keep him. And if you read, and if you read the, the gospels, Jesus affirms this more than once. Father, those you, you have given me, I will not lose one. Those you have given me. And we're going to see a, a verse in John 17. I don't ask on behalf of the world. I ask for those who have, for those who have yours, because those who have been predestined, they have been called, justified, and effectively will be glorified. Perfected, wonderful, before the, before the Lord to worship him in all things and to do all things for the glory of God. Another text, very quickly, Ephesians 1, 1, uh, 1 11, rather, says, In him we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I want to emphasize two things in this verse that are hand in hand with what we have been talking about and the purpose of this morning. The first is that perhaps depending on the context in which you come from, maybe this is the first time you, you hear about this doctrine of predestination, but instead of ignoring, ignoring the theme, which is what many opt to do, I'm simply going to pretend it doesn't, this verse doesn't exist and live my life as if that verse doesn't exist. On the other hand, what we must understand is whether we like it or not, that's not the issue. The, the issue is not, does this, is this doctrine good or do I like this idea or not? The problem is that this is a biblical teaching that is clearly spoken of in scripture. And so because of that, we need to deal with this. We can talk about predestination, but we can't deny predestination. We can't say God has not predestined us because clearly the Bible has affirmed that this is what has happened before the foundation of the earth. God predestined those whom he would call and justify and certainly glorify. That is a guarantee. And that gives us peace because it's terrible to live a life with the idea that I can lose my salvation tomorrow. If the salvation depended on ourselves, it would be lost already because we are going to fail. We fail. So then how does this work? Usually when we speak of this, the first answer is, ah, so I can live however I want and I'm going to go to heaven. But that's not what the text says. That's not what the Bible says. First, First John says that those who live in sin have not been saved, have not been regenerated. That is not what Paul is speaking of. Paul is speaking of a person who has effectively been predestined by God before the foundation of the, of the world, called for salvation, justified in Christ, will persevere in faith, will persevere in a holy life, will grow in the doctrine of the apostles, will grow in scriptures, will grow in love for God and for his church, and he will maintain himself. In this way, until the Lord calls him to his princes or until Christ returns, whatever comes first. But he who has been loved by God will 
not be lost, will not be lost. When we see a person who maybe has come to church, has attended for a couple of months, and then returned to the world, and then doesn't want to know anything of the church, and it's been years, and doesn't demonstrate a Christian character, and doesn't demonstrate love for the Lord, what's most probable is that that person has was never saved, was never saved in the first place, and simply has had an emotion. Remember uh, la, the parable of the of the soils? They had an emotion, they, they, but they didn't have a genuine conversion. The Lord had not worked in that heart because if the Lord had worked in that heart, that person would have persevered. That man would have kept loving God and seeking his word. As we see in Acts 2, what was the mark of those who, who were added to the church? They persevered in the doctrine of the apostles and the communion one with another. They persevered. It doesn't say that they came one day, made a profession of faith, and never came back again. It doesn't say that. It says they came here, they they came loving, they continued to love the Lord, they continued to mature in doctrine, they continued to grow to the point where they were generous. They loved the church to the point that they gave to give their own means to cover the, the needs of others. It was a practical love, a genuine love for God and demonstrated in love to the church. Simply, the church is not a building. The church is not an institution, a religious institution. It is not an ethical organization or a moral organization. The church is not a social political, uh, group. Many want to, uh, do a lot of politics in the church and establish human ideas and mix them with the church. But no, the church has a function that is very clear, has very clear roles as the, the assembly of those redeemed, the, the called, uh, the calling of the ones of the, that have been re- redeemed, that have been called out by the Lord, have been saved, that are growing in doctrine in the love for one, for one another and that desire to honor with Christ with all their hearts. That is the church. The church is a living entity. It's an organism. It's not an organization. It's an organism. It's alive because it's made, as we're going to see, with living rocks. The church is a called out, is a called, uh, a group of called out ones of the redeemed. What I mentioned a moment ago, John 17, 9, Jesus is, is praying to the Father. And this is interesting because Jesus says in verse 9 of John 17, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. And notice that distinction. If it's, but those who you have given me for they are yours. There is a distinction. And when we talk about this verse, some ask, well, does that mean that God doesn't love the world? And the answer is, Yes, God loves the world. God loved the world so much that he makes the sun rise over the good and the bad. He offers the gospel to everyone. He has demonstrated, and this is something that is known as common grace. No one who has come through this world can say, I have not experienced the love of God. 
no human that has lived in this world can complain and say, I never received God's love. They experienced God's love every day they were on this earth. They had air. They had the capacity to admire what God has created. They had the exposition, the revelation of God, the natural revelation, the general revelation, and specific revelation. That's the creation in the Bible. And he was exposed to the to the goodness of God. He enjoyed the blessings to be loved and to love. And even those who are not believers, they they enjoy the joy that of having a family, of loving their wives. Non-believers can participate in a lot of benefits that God has given in his grace. They have the grace of God in that he has created the things that we can enjoy, food we can enjoy, scenery we can enjoy. We have the Lord of the love of, of God every second of our lives. But in to make a distinction, and this is the distinction that we notice here, Jesus speaks of a particular love for those whom God has decided to save. A specific love. Jesus says, I do not ask on behalf of the world in a general sense, but a, a conjunction that makes a contrast, a distinction of the idea. This is the opposite. But of those, who am I, who am I, who am I asking on behalf of? Those whom you have given me, for they are yours. You have determined this, Father. Those whom you have called, those whom you have chosen, are for those whom Christ has died and who will effectively see God and will see the glory of his coming kingdom. John 17. But verse 24, 1724, Jesus continues, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. If you notice, he's talking this preposition or this term is specific. Whom you have given me. Jesus has in mind a specific group, a particular group. The question is then, why do I preach to the whole world if God has has called only a particular group to be saved? And the question is, because I don't know who this particular group is. I'm called to preach the gospel to everyone. And God in his sovereign will, in his good will, and this is interesting, this is, this is important to understand. When I have not understood the doctrine of predestination, generally my, my response is going to be, oh, well then God is bad because he chooses. But the, but the answer is no. God is good. The Bible tells us that his loving kindness, because if God did not save us, we would all go to hell. Everyone would be lost. And so God, to demonstrate his mercy, to demonstrate his forgiveness, to demonstrate his goodness, since all are lost, not because of God's fault, but because of the man's fault, now that all are lost, then he decides to demonstrate mercy and save millions and millions of millions of people, sending 
his most precious son, his own son. This doesn't speak of a bad God. This speaks of a merciful God. The same, the same, uh, prayer of Jesus is evidence of this blessing. Father, I decide that, desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. And you might be asking, what about John 3.16? This is the common text or the first text that is used to say, no, God offers or God will save the whole world in general. Every single person. John 3.16, maybe you know it by heart. For God also loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So the first thing we notice here is that it says, because God so loved the world, that he sent his only begotten son, that's Jesus. So the question is, how did John, how, how is John understanding the term world? When John says world, what is he thinking? Is he thinking of every single person here or that are in the entire world, all the millions of people in the world? If I tell you, brother, go to my house. I'm inviting you to my house. Oh, who's going? The whole, everyone's going. Well, what am I saying? Am I saying that the entire world, everyone in the world is coming to my house at that time? Or am I using a general term to say that the majority of the church is coming? All my friends from church are coming. Well, that sounds good, but, but show me in the Bible. We can. If you look a little further ahead, John 12, John 12, verse 19, we can see how God, how John uses the term world in a more clear context. John 12, 19. Uh, They would see Jesus and they would see how they, how people would follow him and, and they would say, look at how the world follows him. How are they using, or how is John using, who is the same author of John 3.16, he's the same author of 12.19, how is he using the world in a general form? He's saying everyone, all types of people, are following Jesus. That's what the Pharisees were observing. People of high society, humble people, working people, slaves, slave owners, religious, no, not religious Men, women, Jews, Greeks, they were following him. They have, they were being convinced by his message. Look, the, the world is following him. What I want to demonstrate to you is that in John 3.16, it doesn't necessarily imply that when God is speaking of salvation, he is referring to every single person in the world but it speaks of every type of people in the world. Christ came to die of people from every race, tongue, color, blue, green, red, of every continent. Then, in fact, the same text, the same text, if we don't leave John 3.16, 
that he gave that he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son for all types of people and then here's the clarification this is John's clarification John clarifies what's happening here it says that whoever believes shall not perish but have eternal life whoever believes if i say whoever has brown shoes i'm not speaking of all of you i'm speaking of a specific group if i say whoever has a shirt i'm speaking of a specific group and that's what john 3:16 is doing john is talking john is saying that god loved all types of people all tongue tribe and nation and color and sent christ as a savior so that whoever believes a specific group who are those that are going to believe those whom god saves those whom god in his good and sovereign will have decided has decided to save and this influences many aspects when i think of when you think of your salvation don't give yourself a pat on the back don't think that you are better than your neighbor and that's why you believed in the in the gospel this truth humiliates us terrorizes us puts our feet on the ground because it makes us understand that we were not looking for god god sought us out we were not good god sanctified us god sanctified us by by means of his son who was good who did complete a, a perfect life and this beautiful interchange of salvation the just the obedient obedient the pure dies so that the perverted sinner would live christ the obedient one and us the sinners and that's the interchange in the mind of god and finally we're entering the last stretch of our first session so i just want to clarify something real really quickly acts 2 speaks of the of the birth of the church a pentecost the church that is being born is bought by christ in the merits of christ christ died and resurrected to make the salvation possible so the question is why is the church valuable why should the church be valuable the church is valuable for many reasons but because it's valuable to god christ died for the church we ought to love the church because christ loved the church in to the utmost as we saw god sent his most precious son jesus was incarnated to li- to live to die and to be resurrected for every believer so it's not important our position within the church is not important that we are that we are sheep or teachers or deacons or pastors we ought to come to the church with reverence with love with res- with adequate respect because we are dealing with what is most precious in God's mind with what God loves we have talked about certain things but if you've noticed the church is not a human idea it's not that someone invented this 
It's not that a pastor one day said, well, I'm going to create a church and I'm going to do it this way and this way and we're going to design it and we're going to we're going to reunite on Sundays. No, this was designed by God. We come on Sunday because Jesus resurrected on Sunday. We come on Sunday because Jesus, if you see in the Gospels, he appeared to the disciples on the first day of the week and continued doing that for uh, for a, a while. They reunited on the first day of the week to worship God, establishing this pattern of conduct, and they would unite to preach and to expound on the word and to be instructed. And so we see that God began the church before the foundation of the world. He thought of the of the church. He began the church in Acts 2. And not only that, but he has designed the structure of the church. Because there are past, why are there pastors in the church? Because God has designed it in that way. We've already read this verse. God doesn't, God gives us the requirements of, of pastors in Timothy and, and Titus and gives us the requirements for overseers and for deacons. And thus we can see the structure that God has designed. Think of this. Everything that God wants us to do, he has told us to do. God wants us to pray, and he explains how to pray. Jesus teaches us how to pray in Scripture. God wants us to wants there to be pastors. He tells us how a pastor ought to be and gives us the requirements of a mature man. God wants to show us how to preach the gospel, and he tells us how to do that how to communicate the gospel. So what I want to show you, God wanted deacons. He gave us the requirements for our deacons. So what I want to say is everything that God has decided for the church has been established in the scriptures. If a pastor decides to invent church, he's not very creative. He's not being very intelligent. He's being disobedient. If a pastor decides to do things that are not instructed in the script, in the scriptures, what he is doing is disobeying what the creator and designer of the church has already determined. So, as we have mentioned, and maybe this is how we should observe it, the, the purpose of the church is to, to worship God, admire the power of God, exalt his works, starting with our own salvation, if we think of our own salvation, that is a gift from God, that is a grace from God, that I deserve to be eternally condemned to hell, but God in his goodness has saved me, and now I can love him. I want to worship him. I want to adore him. I want to sing and open my heart to him and serve him because I'm so grateful every day of my life. I'm so grateful that the eternity I will be spending in glory and not in destruction and not in pain. So the first purpose of the church is to worship God, but then the edification of one another. And we're going to see that in our third session. I want you to have this perspective clear. But then the purpose of the church isn't centered in those who are just here but also those who are outside. And that speaks of evangelism, to reach out to the lost. God had put this church in this world to worship God, 
to edify the believers, to, to help them mature and to grow, and to reach out to the lost, to reach out to those who don't know him. And Ugo, our brother Ugo is going to explain that to us in the next session. And so this is a, a sort of a map, a GPS for, for our conference. Worship God, a purpose of the church, edify one another and to grow in the image of Christ, and then to reach those who do not know Christ, those who God will save because he has determined it. The predestination, instead of being uh, um, something that discourages us, should encourage us. If it just depended on my good will, on the, the good will of a person, it should be discouraging. What if, what happens if nobody responds? What happens if nobody wants to believe? That would be discouraging. I don't know if my task is going to have fruit because maybe no one will respond to the message of Christ. But because I know that God had promised to save before the foundation of the earth, of the world to, to, there will effectively be people that will respond and they will grow and they will mature and we will see them eternally in glory. So then finally, finally, all of our adoration towards God is based on the word. I want to demonstrate quickly a couple of final texts for us. Colossians 3.16 Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Richly this qualifies how the word of Christ should dwell. With all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another. And listen to this. Teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. Our life, our whole life, is given to God. We have been bought, we have been purchased by Christ to glorify God, to exalt God. And we exalt Him with our lives, and we exalt Him with our mouths, and we exalt Him through our service. And this is something that we, this isn't something we only do on Sunday, this is something that we do Sunday to Sunday. We go to our work, and then we begin the day praying, grateful to God and saying, Lord, help me to glorify your name in, in my secular job, perhaps, in, in, among my neighbors, among my family that does not know you. Help me to represent clearly and strongly your son and his message and his goodness. What is the church then? Paul tells Timothy, this is the last uh, verse that we're going to see. First Timothy, first Timothy 3.15. That is the church of the living God. That is the, the church is to defend the church the the pillar of and foundation of our faith 
It's a edification. It's a building that probably had the function of protecting and defending something, a city or a house, a castle. So then the church, it's put in this world to exalt the truth of God. That is the word. That is the truth and to defend the word of God to defend the truth from deceit. And finally, maybe you've heard of the church in Sardis. Uh, Revelation 3, the church in Sardis. What was the problem with the church in Sardis? Well, Jesus says, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. What does that mean? The church of Sardis on the outside had this name of a church. It looked like a real lighthouse. On the outside, it looked like it was real, a genuine church. Maybe it had a a sign on the door. I don't know. You have a name that you are alive or you say you are alive. You have the name of a real church. But in reality, you are dead. You are not a real church. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which you... For I have not found your deeds. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. He who has ears, let him hear. May the Lord keep us from becoming imitation lighthouses. May the Lord keep us from being false churches and from being false believers, but that we really love Christ and are really transformed and his work is really clear in our lives and in our churches.